0: Welcome to the Highway to Well with Derek Bell. Today, we're talking with Dave Barbier, sustainability coordinator at the University of Wisconsin-Stevens Point. In this episode, we're definitely going to talk about sustainability, but we're going to also hint at how that impacts our well-being and continue to expand our definition of wellness and how the environment and sustainability practices fit into that. We'll also dive deep into his devotion to and adoration of the Dave Matthews Band. Thank you again for listening, let's get on the highway to well. Welcome here to the highway to well with Dave Barbier, the sustainability coordinator at UWSP. But Dave, before we dive into wellness and sustainability, we need to talk. Yes. We need to talk about your now 30-year obsession with the great Dave Matthews Band.
1: It is a quality obsession.
0: (laughs) So I just asked you who your favorite band was. You said, without a doubt, Dave Matthews. How did this happen? And what has it meant to you, your life, and your kids, as you were just telling me?
1: Yeah. Um, I, I don't know. We I got hooked on them a couple of years after they sort of started to come to mainstream and saw my first show with them in 1996 in Milwaukee at Summerfest. And then have pretty much made it a yearly expedition to at least see them once. Uh, In the mid-90s, when I was still in school, we would literally tour with them in the Midwest. And so I would easily take a week to 10 days and hit five or six shows. So um, those were in a little more uh, experimental times, I'll say. (laughs) Um, But then it's just been something that's continued. And, um, you know, when I, my wife is from New Jersey. So when I met her, she was a big Bon Jovi fan, obviously. Yes. Apparent reasons, which you know, that's fine. I don't it know.
0: brings balance to the family. <laughs>
1: that's right, and um, probably after a few years together, she went to a show, a Bon Jovi show, with a couple of friends, and she came back afterwards, and she said, "Well, Bon Jovi's probably a better showman, but Dave is definitely a better musician." And I was like, "Done. it's all I needed to hear. Good, perfect. <laughs> I have I have transitioned you into uh, understanding of quality music, and then." Um, We've just continued to go every year, and then as um, we started to have kids, um, when my wife was pregnant, um, we went to a couple of shows while uh, my daughter was in utero, and then when she w- she was born in she was born in April, and uh, the year she was born was 2011, and they were doing instead of doing a long tour, they did a couple of I think they did four or five like three day festivals around the country. And so um, one of the festivals was in Atlantic City in an old airfield. And so my daughter was, you know, she was born in April. It was June. So she was three months old and we took her to the festival. And so she was catching her first shows at like three months.
0: In Jersey. In Jersey. That. That is beautiful.
1: So, and uh, yeah, our last uh, show as a family was just this summer. We went to uh, out east to visit my wife's family and... Um, We went to Niagara Falls and then from there shot over the next night to Saratoga Springs. And Saratoga Springs is a beautiful venue um, with this like gorgeous walk through this state park that you like walk in about a mile. And it's just through this beautiful woods and you get there and they have your sort of concert venue it's a beautiful venue but the lawn because it's in a state park just goes back and back and back so there's plenty of room and just in the back of the lawn they set up a nice family section so it's like you can go back there there's a bunch of other families hanging out and so that's like where you camp out and then if you want to like take your kids a little closer to the chaos you can but <laughs> you don't have to and uh yeah
0: oh man
1: so yeah so my daughter's been at least to like half a dozen shows um and my son's probably been to at least two or three at this point so it's a family tradition we're building it sounds
0: like it i saw i saw dave matthews for five dollars (laughs) in in 1995 i was in Norman Oklahoma this was right after the Oklahoma City bombing okay and I was a big head Todd fan right at the on. time yep knew a little bit about Dave Matthews like all of my music snap friends from college we maintained contact and shared new music right so
1: still trading tapes back just still trading tapes
0: yeah. <laughs> um compilations from you know the yeah. smaller record labels put you know put stuff out so right I knew I think I would heard a couple songs from him, didn't know much about him, and Big Head Todd was supposed to play at this small venue, and Dave Matthews was opening up for Big Head Todd at this time. And so I was most interested in seeing Big Head Todd. And then because of the bombing, it was moved to this large honky-tonk on the west side of Oklahoma City. Right on. Like an old-school honky-tonk, like Urban Cowboy movie (laughs) honky-tonk. Yeah, yeah. So... I, and then, and then instead of um, having it be like a seated, you know, it's not a seated venue. So for whatever reason, they decided just to charge five bucks and get as many people as they could in, Sure. give all the money to the city or whatever organizations were involved with the bombing, um, clean up and support. And so paid five bucks, go in and watch Dave Matthews. And it was absolutely fascinating. You know, at the time for popular music, it was very unique. Right. And then, all I remember from Big Head Todd was, I was amazed that he, he as he's playing during probably Bittersweet, or (laughs) one of their more popular songs where there's a long solo, one of his guitar strings broke, and then the hand tech guy grabbed another guitar, came over, slid it underneath him as he's still continuing to play, and they just like move one guitar and slide the other one up without skipping a beat. Jeez. That was pretty neat. That for 5 bucks alone to get <laughs> that to was see that. yeah. Not only did I get to see Dave Matthews, that was probably the cheapest ticket Dave Matthews ever sold and then I got to see Todd flip his guitar around and continue to play a solo so it was all in all a magical night
1: a good five dollars
0: it was a good five (laughs) dollars and it went to a good cause so I feel really good about that so now that you've seen Dave Matthews 874 times what is the best opening band at any of the concerts that you saw
1: well that would actually mean I made it to in to see (laughs) the opening bands um, Which doesn't always happen. That's true. Um, they had, um, in, in Madison Square Garden, I saw them open up a show and The Roots were playing. Mm. And uh, seeing, seeing The Roots was pretty amazing opener. And um, they came out and did a couple of jams together as well throughout the show. So I'd probably have to put The Roots up there as like. That's probably, good. Probably the time. I was worried
0: thing. you were going to say Rusted root." No, no. <laughs> We'd have to have another talk. So now, now that now that you've uh, you've been through the summer concert series with Dave, seen him play festivals, so I'm going to put you in charge of something. Okay. We're going to restart the Horde Festival, <laughs> and you get to pick the five bands they're going to be the headliners for the horde festival in 2020 we're going out on the summer tour we're going out on the road you get to pick the five bands right on who are you picking
1: oh let me see well dave obviously And
0: dave's dave's gonna be your end of the night headliner
1: yeah yeah for sure he has to be um Boy, this is a tough question. I
0: told you, these are going to be tough, tough questions. questions today.
1: Can I can can I consult a Spotify playlist for that? <laughs> uh, let, let me see. Uh, definitely Michael Franny and Spearhead. You got to throw them in there. They will just tear the place up. Um, they're
0: probably in like your second slot. First second slot. Yeah, right kick around. Off.
1: I mean, my my wife would definitely put them in the second <laughs> slot, so I think to keep the peace, I probably need to do that. yeah um, let me see. Oh, the Wood Brothers.
0: Hmm. Um,
1: yes. The Wood Brothers are very nice. Um, it's getting rustic in here. Well, yeah. I don't know. They they got more jams than you might expect. <laughs> um, let me see. Uh where else should I take that? Um there. I'm I'm gonna take like a maybe like a lord huron or maps and atlases they're Hmm. they're pretty funky sounding um so i might go there and then um let's see i would probably like i would probably um i would probably go with this guy uh I, pr- I would probably bring in a DJ, and so I would I would probably I have like three DJs I'm like thinking of. Um, can I can I name all three or should Oh, I yeah, like pick one? Just,
0: we'll just weave them in between Dave and and spearhead and so the, there, Boyd brothers. There's a
1: guy named St. Germain who's very good. Uh, he has a very sort of eclectic sound. Uh, another guy named LTJ. Bookham, um, who's very good. Uh, and then Bonobo. And Bonobo, what I like about him is he will do his shows with an actual live band. Hmm. And so, like, he'll cut his record, and then he'll basically put the record together with a live band and go out and play. And so that's pretty crazy to see a DJ's music flow. Yeah, We might have to throw soundtrack Sector 9 in there,
0: too. They'd
1: be good horde-ready.
0: Horde <laughs> uh, I think we're on to something here. I think you need to think you need to take the summer off and build concerts.
1: I mean, I wouldn't mind.
0: <laughs> that sounds absolutely fascinating.
1: As long as all the bands travel on biodiesel buses, like, we're all <laughs> set, you know.
0: It would be a different kind of horde fest. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No w-
1: no disposable items whatsoever.
0: No. And would you, would you pick a spot and have a special guest and try to get Blue Traveler to come out of the cave that they're in for a one-night-only...
1: I mean, I would definitely uh, bring Mr. Popper into the equation. <laughs> uh, I mean, he uh, he cut his chops on some of Dave's earlier stuff and vice versa, so they've actually got some nice recordings together of uh, some live shows from the early to mid-90s when they were yeah getting down together.
0: Back in the old day of finding old bootlegs. Mm-hmm. Having a friend who knows a friend who's got a bootleg of a concert, and
1: there was just a release on uh, on Facebook. There's a group called DMB Family, and the, on there somebody uh, Chester Copperpot, who's like a video and audio mixer for the band, put up some video a day from a festival in Chicago where they premiered some song, and it was like him and. I want to say Stefan out playing and then they brought out Popper and it's like just the three of them hanging out with a little crowd. It's pretty cool. Wow. So that was when John was still big, <laughs> which he no longer is. No, he, he got some wellness.
0: He did. Yeah. He, <laughs> he had a lot of things going on. Yes. Guns in his car, <laughs> L- losing some, losing some weight, getting healthy. Yeah. Good for him. Good for him. So, you're the sustainability coordinator, as we mentioned at the beginning. Yeah, and uh, and here at UWSP, so the long list of achievements and things that you're proud of include um, the pr- you're on listed annually on the Princeton Review for a green um, you're on the Green College Honor Roll. Yeah, and then you've also, uh, most notably, you were the first UW system school to offer composting in every academic building that's correct and the first university in wisconsin so that's beyond just the uw systems schools throughout all the colleges and universities in wisconsin to attain 100 percent renewable energy or electricity. Electricity. electricity electricity sorry yes yeah big and difference between those two. yeah um and so you in your role so explain to me the in first of all i want to touch on you know what you do and how it what it means to the campus and what you see and where the campus is going. But as we've talked about, how do we, what does this mean in the bigger picture? And especially when we start talking about as, as it pertains to wellness, you know, what are we, what do you think we need to be paying most attention to now and, and why? I I really want to get into the whys as it matters to our world greatly, because as we've talked about too, a lot of these, so there's some of these ideas or things we know that are sometimes compartmentalized. And in wellness, we have this, we've, we've oftentimes become our own problem. And when we start talking about environmental wellness, we're oftentimes framing it within an organizational work setting right. in terms of light or space to try to improve productivity right. and health. You know, like if someone gets more daylight they're they ought to be healthier <laughs> and they ought to be more productive right. and happier. But then we also it, at best, then we may talk about walking paths or some environmental um, what I would say are things that make us feel better to be in the environment or are more natural. Like if we talk about parks or um, communities when we build communities, are we building them in ways that people will spend more time together? Right. So there's a, there's a lot of that that is absolutely wonderful and good for us to talk about. But on your in what you see every day, you're talking about things at different levels and in different ways, and sustainability is a much different issue than your walking paths to try to get people to spend more time together.
1: Right. Well, I think, you know, like one of the things about the position is it's a very broad topic, right? Like in sustainability, we talk about um, there's things as it relates to environmental sustainability, our personal sustainability, and sort of, all sorts of spaces in between there so you know we can be talking about composting one minute you're talking about energy efficiency the next minute you're talking about um, economic modeling the next minute in terms of well what kind of economy is going to sustain us or what have you so I think sort of realizing that um, really makes it for me that like I'm dialed into a lot of things which I know enough about from a sustainability lens but i'm not an expert in any one of those areas you know so i'm a i can talk to you about how to create and build a lead building that is sustainability focused but i'm not an engineer or an architect you know Mm -hmm. so it's like those are the different sort of aspects to that and i think you know looking at it in terms of the university i think part of what we're trying to do is create a space where we are starting to raise the level of awareness you know and that's one of the biggest issues i think is people don't necessarily see where they have opportunities or that their opportunities is matter and i think um you know there there's a popular meme i've seen about like going zero waste and that says like we don't need two people doing zero waste perfectly, we need a million people doing it imperfectly. And mm-hmm. so, you know, what that speaks to is the de- need and the desire to have us as a larger global community understanding like, we all need to be working towards this effort, we all need to be striving to do it better, um, to use our resources as efficiently as possible, and so I think like, those are the things about understanding, like the little things do matter because there's a collective force that's sort of happening around and we're trying to build awareness to that. Um, you know, two examples I can just give you sort of quickly about things that you don't necessarily think about but are are happening. I was in a meeting with a bunch of, uh, I work in the business affairs department, so we were in a meeting with all of the business affairs directors and, a couple of people from each one of their units uh, doing some strategic planning and thinking. And working together, uh, the facilitator presented us with a large post-it note. So like basically maybe a 4 by 8 sheet or 3 by 6 kind of size, and we were supposed to write things and post them on the wall. Well, I was there with a student, and she's like, well, this is ridiculous waste of paper and so she immediately just ripped it in half because it's like you can write your thought on half that sheet, Mm -hmm. you know, you don't need it all. And within a snap of her fingers, like all of a sudden you started to see all of the directors, all of the people around the room start ripping their paper because they realized, like, oh yeah, why wouldn't, why wouldn't we not do that, you know? Mm -hmm. And not everyone in the room did it, but I would say easily 80 to 90% of the people there started ripping their sheets of paper. And so like, that's a small thing, but it's also like raising that awareness of that whole group to be thinking about like, well, how are we using our resources? Are we being efficient? Even in our day-to-day operations of something that small. And then more recently, I was in a budget managers meeting, room full of, I don't know, at least probably 50 people all from all walks of our campus. Uh, we were doing a budget manager training and uh, the presentation was going on and somebody asked, well, like, is there a printout of this? And the budget director stood up and said, well, I don't know if Dave's in the room or not, but I didn't want to print out all of this paper and waste it <laughs> all, you know? And I was in the back of the room and I was like, I am here, thank you very much, you know? And so even if I'm, like indirectly being used as a reason why we're not doing something, but that's making us more efficient. Like that's spreading the awareness through our campus to other people. And so you start to see those pockets radiating, you mm-hmm. know, in terms of like, okay, that wouldn't have happened maybe three, four, five years ago. Yeah. But now you're starting to see that progression sort of take care. So I think that sort of awareness that we all have a role to play, whatever it is. Um, I think is part of what we're really trying to get to and achieve.
0: Yeah. What and so you're so if you think about the campus as a large large organization. Mm-hmm. So what has been like I guess in two parts. So what has been helpful for you? Um with the or what have you seen that you get momentum right away, that everyone looks around and says, you know what, that is a brilliant idea. We're going to go that direction. What other and then in the other in the other vein what challenges or what is the most challenging part of trying to push an organization to be a better steward or however you want to frame it is being more environmentally sound and aware and sustainable.
1: Right? Um, I think things are easy when um, I think things are easy when there's motivated groups of people behind wanting to do it. So like one of the things I can think about is getting our composting up and running on campus. Like that was easy because there was a built-in structure that was sort of already ready to support it. You know, we have a waste management degree program. Uh, We were already sort of doing composting in our dining services. And so we had a compost pile already on campus. And so it was just a matter of sort of fine-tuning that to figure out and... To figure out okay well how do we just keep growing this program it's already here let's just make it bigger um, and better and more accessible um, so we can increase the education and awareness around what we're doing and so when you have students who are in that sort of position or faculty and staff that makes it easy to sort of move it forward on a certain level and also because you're not making a requirement right it's not like everybody has to go compost it's here we're gonna make this accessible we're gonna try and educate you about it we're gonna try and tell you you know and our composting system I love it because it's a closed-loop system there's educational benefits there's environmental benefits there's social benefits um, you know there's financial benefits so like it's very good example of like why is it sustainable and how does it hit all of the metrics we're looking for Um, So when you can do that, um, that makes it easy because you're just simply taking what's already there and sort of being like, okay, this is how we're going to go. And that's like one thing about sustainability too that we're seeing and learning more and more. It's like what is going to be sustainable for us here in central Wisconsin, you know, just to use like a more extreme example, is not going to be the same for people in San Antonio. Mm -hmm. You know, like the sustainability, the weather conditions, the food, all of that is different in those locations. So sustainability is going to look different in each one of those areas. I think in terms of the difficulty in moving the organization forward um, as a whole, I think comes from, I think one, a very sort of typical human condition, which is that uh, we don't like change. You know, so I am definitely a change agent on campus. People see me come into their office or if I'm setting up a meeting with them, they're like, oh, here we go. You know, like um, I have a little bit of that grim reaper aspect of like, oh, this is going to be more work for us. Okay. Um, so I think there there's part of just that natural intrinsic sort of, oh, we have to change. And so that becomes a struggle. I think the other thing, you know, is that um, there is... Multiple different structures within the university. So the university is not unlike a small city, right? So we've got an operations team and a facility services team. We've got academic and social teams. We've got, um, you know, student affairs, academic affairs, and so like trying to figure out when those things overlap. Uh, how to get them all sort of marching in lockstep. And it's still something we're struggling. I mean, we're clearly still have lots of work to do. And so it's just a, a, a matter, a lot of times this is my role becomes about communication and really being able to talk to people in different constituencies and sort of say like, okay, well here, you know, what are your needs? How is what we're doing gonna meet your needs, not meet your needs? If it's not, let's think about what we, what adjustments we can make. Um, to try and figure that out, so we do a lot of problem solving and adjusting to try and what's going to be sustainable for our campus. Not so much about like chasing this credit or that credit, but what do we really need to do this well for us and for the students. And mm-hmm. so, but I think that's that's a struggle when you have different departments. I mean, even for a time up until just a few months ago, excuse me, we had we had three different units on the campus with separate custodial teams. So if I wanted to make a change to our system, I have to and if I wanted to do it uniformly across the campus, which from an education perspective you're wanting to do so that way students are seeing the same thing everywhere they go. Mm-hmm. Well, now you have three separate vested parties and they have a whole different set of constituents and so like trying to get consistency in that model is really difficult where recently we've just streamlined into one team and now it's like great because now if we can make one change, we can affect the whole system versus just part of the system.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, as you're talking about being the change agent and the person that when you go to a room, go into a room, people get a little uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. Um, that, is exactly what it feels like to be the wellness guy going into a steel factory to talk about blood pressure. Right. It's just the greeting. The greeting you get <laughs> <laughs> being the the least liked person in the room is sometimes tremendous. But there is, I think, you're you're touching on you know that whole point of of what you're what you're aiming for involves that behavior change and attitude change, but also a complete awareness building effort. Like I think for the most part, you're going to find very few people are going to say, no, I want the environment to be worse. Right. So let's just keep doing what we're doing. Or like you talked about in the meeting, you go into a meeting and you have one person start to rip the paper in half to avoid excess paper. Right. Like those steps are tremendous. And then you start seeing people follow suit and In all likelihood, the next meeting some of those people went to, they may have looked around the room and thought, we don't need as much paper. Right. Or I've seen, and this has been happening for a while, outside of like your field and related fields per se, but in our field, even 10 years ago, there were major conferences that were moving away from the amount of print pieces. Mm -hmm. So you have like a 1,000 people show up and you're printing a 100-page guidebook. Right, and, and everyone's moved away from that. So there is there is some momentum at a surface level, I would say, of just people who don't touch or have any control over the environment, piece or sustainability pieces, but are helping reinforce and enact those changes. Yeah, absolutely. Which is really really wonderful to see, and those are helpful steps. I think all of us need education. So everything that you're you touch on a campus is something that, you know, for the most part, we're not really aware of the depths of either a problem or a fix, but need to hear what are your reasons behind wanting to make a change. Right. And oftentimes, and I know in our field, the biggest obstacle to making something happen usually comes down to a challenging discussion over return on investment. Yes. And so... To what, you know, for us in, in the wellness field, that is either a clear, there's a clear way to get to a return on investment. So if, um, if I can avoid a doctor visit for you, there's likely a cost I can call on to say, okay, you didn't have to go to urgent care when you could have gone to go see the nurse practitioner that's in the clinic, that's at your organization. And then I saved you $150, right? That stuff's pretty easy. So like the cost of paper usage is pretty easy. But then for the for a lot of what we do, there is not a real strict method of determining an ROI because of the length of time it takes to see a change happen. Right. So I'm not sure to what degree that you relate to that in terms of some of the changes that you see that are not so clear cut. They're obvious in theory, but um, what changes do you have in mind that are that you find to be challenging to put a dollar amount to?
1: Well, I think, I, I mean, I think there's a lot of things because we look at, when you're looking at a simple ROI, it's a simple payback metric, right? right. So you're like, how quickly can I get my money back out of this process? Right. And I think part of what you, know, you see with sustainability and looking at things is like, uh, is that the only thing you're measuring for? And if it is, then what else are you missing, you know? And so I think the externalities question becomes really sort of important in terms of, like, um, thinking about how is that benefiting the environment? How is it benefiting our well-being? For our case, how is it benefiting our students' education? What is it sending to them as they walk away? And it's like, well, that's not something that you're particularly going to be able to just put a— quantifiable number on and in my setting like oh you know um, it's it's no uh, it's no surprise or no new news like uh, our current financial environment at the university is tough you Mm -hmm. know so there aren't a lot of financial resources so you have to be thinking about like how can you find success without a lot of revenue you know to be able to put into capital projects or things of that nature and so I think Trying to evaluate, like, well, the health and wellness of our people is really important. you know, and so like, well, what's the value in terms of creating community? Uh, what's the value in terms of having an event where you bring different people together? There, there isn't necessarily a cost return on that, but there's a social fabric return on that, you mm-hmm. know, in terms of building that community, getting people together who normally don't necessarily come together. And so it's like, well, what's the benefit of that? Well, the benefit of that is growing strength and pride in your university and understanding different people's roles. It's not a return on investment sort of scenario. And trying to get people to think about like, well, you know, some things sell themselves. In terms of like our composting program, we're not having to put a ton, literally, tons of food waste into the landfills. So we're saving on tipping fees. And then once that compost goes back as a soil amendment, we're saving tons of money on landscaping costs and fertilizer because we're not having to buy that because we've got this beautiful soil amendment like ready to go from our food waste. So yeah. like you can look at those financial benefits and, and make the case, but then to be able to externalize and think about more fully like, okay, and then let's think about the fact that it's not going to the landfill, so there's a tipping fee cost, but there's an environmental benefit to that as well because now there's a pollution factor that isn't happening over the broader scope of time because you're sending that much less to the landfill, so then that's creating a health benefit for us in a community, basically, by minimizing pollution even though we might not see that, right? Like, mm-hmm. we don't necessarily see all the pollution that's right in front of us. Um, and then if that creates better air then that's better health environment for us as individuals right so then Mm -hmm. that decreases asthma rates what have you dot 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 and so like well how do you how do you externalize all that how do you put a number on all that like that's tough to do um and especially like for me like we don't have the resources to pay somebody to then like okay, go figure all of that out for us. You know, like, I don't have a, I don't have a a statistician who can sit there and like pound through the numbers, you know? So then it's just like, okay, well, that's just what it is.
0: Yeah, well, I think one of the points you made in it just is something that echoes across, I think there's a lot of, probably a lot of fields or a lot of, I should say, parts of the field where people are trying to make change happen that, that can get, we get caught up in these things where the ownership or the people in charge of the decisions are oftentimes tied to a financial investment and then a return on that. So, right. well, that's pretty clear. Yet, there's a lot of the work we do, like like you brought up. How can you quantify in a metric the value to the student educational experience of the work or the work? Not, okay, first of all, first layer is the work that you're doing. Right. Second layer is a campus that believes in all of this right. and supports it. Right. And to impact the life of a student in a positive way that turns them into a future change agent. Right. So there's the quantifiable piece that is, to me, a, a more important part oftentimes of what we're doing because that is a cultural impact. That is a that is something that is non-definable, non-measurable, but you know it exists. Right. And that's that is where we get caught up in our field of wanting to to help people make behavior change and the first layer is typically you know the first did this person stop eating this or did they start exercising or did they there's always like something there's an action step but then there's the other parts of it that come along like how are they feeling how are their family how what's their family relationship starting to look like how is their Social connectedness to their friends. A lot of these things are not definable, right? But they're significantly important and um, go into the bigger equation of us trying to make a better world for ourselves and our kids and their kids and so forth. And so we've and thankfully in in the wellness field we've seen a lot more discussion recently about how do we create better. Um, environments and pathways for people that are not so definable, not so quantifiable, but we know they exist because of the fact that people are making better choices and living better lives. And so I think we, I think sometimes we undervalue those things like the student experience for the, for the metric that we're trying to find at the top end of making something happen. And that's that is a that is a challenge. That is a I I think there right there is really the crux of what what we're trying to aim for to make a better better environment is are we doing it at a level that starts to seep into the fabric of the experience of everyone on campus or in the community?
1: Well, and, and I think I think in looking at all that too, like from a sustainability perspective, like I would say that one of the problems you would see if you started to talk to Colleagues in my field is that, like, there's even a problem in the fact of that we have to talk about ROI through an economic lens. Mm -hmm. You know, like, because then you're basically saying, well, like, the economy is the most important benchmark that we can use to measure the value of what we're doing. Yeah, and in reality, that shouldn't be the case. Like, there are all these other things that should have equal say in terms of our uh, global mental health, our community mental health, um, our physical well-being, uh, what we're taking into our bodies uh, through uh, food consumption, which in our culture is crazy, mm-hmm. um, you know, and sort of like looking at all of these other metrics and establishing them on an equal footing. And so I think that's part of the thing that we're trying to bring awareness to as well. Like, yeah, okay, the the finances aren't are important, Uh, don't get me wrong it's part of sustainability is being able to figure out how to make those numbers work but to negate the other principles that we're talking about in terms of the impact on the environment uh, especially as we talk about and see the impacts of climate change happening all around us that if you simply want to ignore and say oh that's not related to climate you can but in the reality it's it's totally our climate changing and, and dealing with that, and so like well we should be considering the environmental impacts then of what we're doing, and if that has to go against the ROI, well, from a financial perspective, like we should surely be weighing that, you mm-hmm. know, and thinking about that. Like okay, well we might be hitting our return on investment in three years or four years, but is it at a cost to the environment? And then if it is. We ought to be balancing that to try and figure out, like, okay, well, what do we need to do to make these things work all the way around? Yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. I think that's the complexity, though. That that doesn't. It, it's almost as if sometimes we're also moving too fast to take a step back and start go through the process of understanding that these are complex issues that require complex solutions, right? And that we can't just rely on the simple answer to make change happen. Like that's not the case. It, So what happens if a student... So what happens if one of the students in the class ends up in 20 years creating a solution to a plastics problem that saves the country, like, say, $1.2 billion on plastics? Right. Do I get that ROI? Mm -hmm. Can I go back and retroactively say, hey, you know what? That student said that they learned this in a class at UWSP. Right. So you want an ROI? There's your ROI. Right. But we're not... That's not how we operate too much, you know, and then... And then things happen have to happen in a process that's moving so fast that sometimes we don't allow the thought process to continue to evolve because we just need an answer now
1: right well, and I think too we have i think too we have this history of like uh, a a built in i think especially in our American culture, we have like this built in psychology that. Um, as an American, like it's the greatest country on earth, right? Mm -hmm. Um, That capitalism is the greatest economic model possible. And when you get into these structures where it's the greatest, you know, I think there's there's two sort of ways you can look at it or that I've seen people look at it. One is that it's the greatest and so we just should keep doing what we're doing because Mm -hmm. we're the greatest. The other lens that I try to take more of is that if we're the greatest, we should be continuing to figure out how to keep getting better. That's what maintaining greatness looks like. You can't just do one thing and then expect to be great forever. You know, if um, Michael Jordan came into the league and simply didn't work on becoming a better three-point shooter, like. He would not be the one of the greatest basketball players of all time. He would have been a good shooting guard. Like, mm-hmm. that was it, you know? Like, there has to be that drive and motivation from a great society to continue to do that. And then I think when that happens, the people who are thinking about it that way basically start to rub up against the people who think, well, it's great the way it is. Why would we change it, mm-hmm. you know? And so I think trying to develop that mental model and aspect to be able to say, like, well... Is it really the best out there? Can we make it better? If so, how? You know, and there's all sorts of things from a social perspective and like our government and our economic models where it's like, yeah, there are clearly things going on in other places of the world that we could learn from and adapt into our culture that would make us even better than what we are now.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: And that are like pretty, I would say, you know, not real crazy. Like it's not real crazy to think about we should have a holiday for national voting. Mm -hmm. And like people, you know, even if it's a half day, like you should be able to have a half day to be able to go vote. Like that's how you would engage democracy in a way to really allow people to have access. That's not some sort of like real crazy concept that people can't get behind. But yet here we sit not really adapting to that. or, or other things like runoff voting, you know, like that's another really easy thing that would like crazily change our democracy, but make it more democratic for every person who votes,
0: mm-hmm.
1: you know. And it's like, well, why, why would we not want to do that, uh-huh. you know? But right. but there, it's change, it, it's people ingrained, it's these big systems we have to work with who are in control of finance or power or what have you. So. It's just, there, there's all sorts of interesting aspects to that in terms of dealing with that struggle.
0: Yeah, well, in the other big struggle, I think that we, we are coming to terms with the understanding that it needs to be faced, but I don't know if, if uh, I have heard a great solution yet, but um, our, the information that we're receiving mm-hmm. just in general, across all the different platforms where you can get news right. has, has definitely, and, and this is where I'm worried about the impact that it has on the way we think the world um, operates. So, so being in climate change being a huge topic. Right. Now where kids and so as, and even adults, but I worry a lot about the, the teenager or the junior high kid that needs to do a report on climate change and is getting their information from Facebook. Right. Um, because we all know that that is the least reliable source in the world for information. Yep. Yet that's the world we live in and the narratives that are being pushed on agendas from different groups because of the way social media works on algorithms and clicks and gravitation to the top of um, the chain of information just because it's the most popular, then pushing bad information that is damaging politically and structurally to getting people to understand that there are issues that are worth discussing. They are complex, they are challenging, but they're real and they involve not just environmental stuff that right. we don't. We don't need to compartmentalize like the issues that you work on the campus with to understand that that is not a divergent set of issues from our own health and well-being. Right, and in a very, very local level, like yourself and family, like all of these are interrelated yep. and matter greatly. But that's not how things are sometimes feeling like they're working because of the way information. It just exists and where people are getting their information on how do I make a decision about whether or not climate change is even real and who am I relying on to get that understanding? You know, that's something that is terribly troubling set apart from how we get leaders to usher in change and deal with things like ROI. It's at the basic level of our human experience, where are we getting our information?
1: Yeah, and I think you know it goes back. That it's very true, and I think it goes back to an interesting conversation that I've been, um, I've been having ongoing with a local school principal over the last couple of years, and thinking about like how education works and what we're educating students for, mm-hmm. and I think in our current model, uh, thinking about um, education. we're still operating, not entirely, but in a large context on an education model that's 100 or 150 years old in Mm -hmm. terms of how we sort of push students through a system. And I think in reality, like nowadays, what we need to be training students for, I don't need to remember who the 14th president of the United States was. There's a billion, I have it at my fingertips. Like Mm -hmm. I can figure it out. The key is thinking about, how do we train students to be able to find the right information? How do we make them critical thinkers so when they read something, they think about its source, where it's coming from, who's processing this information to me? How do I go about figuring that out? And so it's not so much about what you can recall. It's about how can you, do you think critically about what you're seeing and being exposed to? Um, and I think on like thinking about that is really important um, not only for the students that we're working with now but uh, even, you know, bringing that question to adults to try and think about. And I also think, you know, looking at the interconnectedness of where we are as a society, you know, I think the historical education model, right, is to promote a continued compartmentalization of information. I mean, and you can look at it from a very broad perspective in post-secondary education as you work up the food chain uh, of graduate degrees. You know, you get a bachelor's degree, it's in history. You get a master's degree, it's in environmental history. You get a doctorate degree and it's the study of uh, dog recovery at Chernobyl between this time and this time. And so it keeps getting smaller and smaller and smaller. Where in the reality, when we start to see new education paradigms It's really trying to shift that on its head and be like, look, all of this stuff is connected and we need to be figuring out how those connective tissues work together. What's the value of my own personal health as it relates to how I feel and then how does that direct into how my how I'm doing in my role as a father, as a husband, as a member of our society? How do those things then impact those people when they go out? And so it's like all of a sudden there's this web that keeps growing just based on the fact of like, well, I'm choosing to work out a couple of times a week, which is releasing chemical endorphins. And then that's all of a sudden creating a different health attitude for me. And then that's like, boom, there's all sorts of other keys to that. It's like, mm-hmm. well, that's, that's even giving the time to think about that. Mm-hmm. As you mentioned earlier, like we're going so fast and in such a fast-paced system, it's like we sometimes don't even stop to process like, well, what is this impact? Why am I doing this? What is the value? Um, how do I see myself in a bigger role of society? Whether, that, whether you see that as being in the society of you know, our city, the region you live in, identifying as a Wisconsinite, identifying as an American, do you identify as a global citizen, where is your concern level for people throughout the world Um, I think all of those things come uh, from that and yet I don't think we give ourselves the space and time to think about it and myself included like so Mm -hmm. I'm I'm, I'm not saying I'm doing that well I'm just saying like in general I think that's a part we're missing.
0: That and, and then also I think the part that that uh, it always is a telling point is when you start talking about inequity. Right. I don't think we spend enough time in an educational setting is where it would be most helpful. You know, and just last week, I was helping my daughter develop a debate topic, and we started talking about voting, voting restrictions. Right. A new concept for her. Haven't thought much about voting, but... So I started talking to her about ID laws, right? And just threw it out there, like, well, well so ID law exists, and for her it was a no brainer. Okay, so you have to have an ID to vote. That sounds right. Yep. Said, but who doesn't have a state-issued driver's license? Because if I don't have one, I can't vote. She's right. like, what? Like the that starts to get into the whys, right. And so then that will lead to a discussion of inequity, right? So who cannot or can't? get or doesn't have a driver's license in a certain state may not be able to vote right do you think that may impact an election well yeah okay you know it's these are conceptual pieces at the at the in the educational setting that could be dealt with and then you ask the question why and then it gets kids more comfortable with understanding that when you read a history of anything it is likely biased and there's a power structure at some level in play in how that history was written. Right. And so that's something in my own education I didn't learn until I got into my college setting or late high school and college setting where we started talking about words like hegemony. And right. Then, so you start to deconstruct how something is written to get to the truth or to get to the validity of what was claimed in the first place right? and who is disenfranchised because of that decision and that's something that and i feel like our political climate today is com- is completely built on m- expanding inequities. <laughs> right. I mean, not i shouldn't say that in that way. I mean, i just think the political climate is built so that those that are pushing inequities are able to do so without little little resistance sometimes or or that we're recognizing it in some degree but there's that now it comes down to voting power and right. know, the big loop of voting restrictions. <laughs> like, all you know, that it, working together. It's all a big circle.
1: Right. Well, I mean, too, you can even look at the um, Citizens United vote by um, the Supreme Court as mm-hmm. like, you know, I look at it as a flaw um, mm-hmm. in terms of establishing money as equal to citizenry, you know, mm-hmm. basically dollars equal people. And it's like, well, that's... Pretty messed up, you know, because then it's like, oh, well, right. If dollars equal people and I'm a billionaire, then I got a lot of votes compared Mm -hmm. to somebody else who's working for minimum wage, you know. And it's like, well, that's not how our system was meant to operate, you know, and that just drives that inequity further, Mm -hmm. you know, Um, and thus going back to the need for like, and that's why we should have a voting holiday so that way people can actually who are working 70 hours a week have the ability to go vote um, because they don't yeah. have to worry about, you know, missing work or what have you. So um I think you know, you can clearly see that in any economic research you look at too about you know, the one percent versus the ninety-nine percent. It's like that inequity is huge, bigger than it's ever been. And it's like, well, from a sustainability perspective, that is not sustainable.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: You know, in a very like, if you just wanna put that in its most simplest structure, like that's not sustainable to keep taking away from the majority so that a couple of people can just have this inordinate amount of wealth, you know? And I'm, I have people who sit on both sides of the fence and it's like, part of it too is trying to find some middle ground, right? Like there's a certain level of reality that comes into play for most for most humans when you talk to them about like, okay, well, what's the metric, what's the tipping point? Like at some point you have to be able to go like, okay, well, if you're an individual and, you make, and you're making over $10,000 a day, take home, mm-hmm. okay? So whatever that puts you at three, three and three and a half million a year or whatever. So let's just say like at 5 million, if you're making 5 million bucks a year, take home, then at some point after that, like, yes, your tax rate should go up substantially because like you're doing just fine. Mm-hmm. You know, like you can totally survive. And that's not to say like you can't keep working... More to try and make more money, but at the same point, like, right, there's some level where that tax rate should be substantial because of the fact that, like, you know, Jeff Bezos isn't making all of that money, his laborers are making that money, Mm -hmm. you know, and it's just simply being funneled up to him. And so, at some point, there should be some level of redistribution of wealth where that number is. I'm not exactly sure to say, but I think as a society, we could look at that and go, like, well, yeah, 5 million, 10 million, whatever that metric is, somewhere in there, there's a point where it's like, okay, you're just making an inordinate amount of money off of the backs of other people, and at some point, we're gonna change your profit model after this limit, you know, and that's not, you know, we're not talking about $100,000 or whatever, we're talking about people that are making bank,
0: right. you know. Right.
1: We're talking about those one percenters, mm-hmm. and it's like, right, and that goes back to like, questioning the greatness of like capitalism, you know, versus looking at, is that a sustainable model? And I mean, the long story short is, we're stuck on a planet of finite resources, plain and simple, like we're not getting, steel's not coming from Mars, right? We're not getting concrete from the moon. So it's like, we have this finite pile of resources, we should be thinking about how to use them most efficiently as possible. And it's like, you can't, continue to grow something, um, forever on a place that is finite. Mm-hmm. Like those two things don't correlate, mm-hmm. you know? And so then if you get to that understanding, then like, well, then it brings into question that capitalistic model we're in and what about that is going to break and where, And do we want to try and do something about it before it breaks? Or do we just want to sit back and keep our heads in the sand and wait for it to explode? You know, but at some point, I mean, and that, all you got to do is go back 10 years and Mm -hmm. check out the economic recession. And it's like we were we're walking a tightrope for Mm -hmm. a number of years to come through that. But it's like, You know, when you see climate change coming and think about the fact of like a lot of people I talk to here in Wisconsin don't acknowledge that the storms we've had recently in the last couple of years or all of a sudden where we're getting like, oh, well, we got two inches of rain in two hours. It's Mm -hmm. like, well, that didn't happen when I was a kid, Mm -hmm. you know. And you think about like, well, they're like, well, how's it going to affect us here? It's like, okay, well, it'll affect you here that if in 20 years, Miami, Washington, D.C., New York, and Philadelphia are all underwater, there's part of that that will be adaptation and they'll start to come, turn into Venice, you know, and they'll figure out how to work in water-based reality. But it's going to displace hundreds of thousands of people mm-hmm. along the way who can't afford to do that. Right. And what are they going to look for? Fresh water well, we got a lot of fresh water. So they're going to come here, you know, because that's going to be the resource you need. The next fights will be about, like, who has access to clean, fresh drinking water. You're already seeing that. Like,
0: Mm
1: -hmm. just ask people in Flint, Michigan. You know, so it's like, well, yeah, that'll affect you a lot in 20 years in terms of your land value, your inundation. Like, that'll be a problem, you know? And so do you want to think about that now or do you just want to not think about it
0: it's a good question right good question um yeah very good what do we have to be hopeful about now as we as we're getting here towards our hour what uh i want to shine some light of hope right what what are we doing that's working that we need to say We've established the beachhead. Let's continue to move forward here.
1: Well, I think one of the big things is uh, one of the big things is energy, right? Mm-hmm. So that is like clearly um, we as a society. Um, some people were dragging along, but as a society, we've essentially established that solar and wind are the cheapest forms of energy, unfortunately, yet we go back. We have to go back to the ROI metric, right? Yeah. Like we couldn't validate solar and wind because they don't uh, produce pollution. Mm-hmm. We have to only value them when their cost point becomes competitive. But at this point, that's happening, you know, so you see large coal companies that 20 years ago would have been like, you know, no way they're going out of business that are folding because of... Uh, issues along divestment because of the cost model. I mean, you can see utilities that are basically shuttering, operating coal-fired power plants because it's cheaper for them to build a new wind farm and generate electricity that way. Mm -hmm. So I think energy is a really, we have a really good opportunity to really drop the hammer on that and be like, let's giddy up, you know? The technology is there for electric vehicles. The wind source to harness renewable energy to create that electricity is there. Like those are things that we should be going whole hog into full throttle as fast as we can. Uh, Unfortunately, we've had, we work in a political system where that's sometimes hard to do especially if you've got people who are being influenced by money from the other side of things but i think the the technology is there the system is in place people understand the benefit the cost modeling fits for those people who don't necessarily are not concerned about climate change like well you don't have to talk about it that way you can Mm -hmm. just talk about it from the economics and it's cheaper so we should do that so i think that's um i think that's really good to be optimistic about. I think the youth who are finally are standing up and who have said they've had enough of the denial of people in my generation, the generations that came before me who say like, oh, this isn't real, or oh, I don't know if this is real. Um, You know, I think there's optimism in there for them to continue to drive. I mean, there's some, I don't know what the exact numbers are, but basically the statistics are like if every kid who's gonna be old enough to vote, every millennial who's old enough to vote, registers and votes, they'll outnumber the baby boomers who mm-hmm. are who are voting. Um, and so it's like, right, so there is an opportunity there, right, to harness the power of our democracy through the youth to be able to say like, no, 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 we're gonna stop screwing around and we're gonna drop the hammer. I think the other thing is that... Um, I think the vision is there on a certain level. I mean, I think because you see this sort of global standard happening, right? Like, you see movement across the globe on this issue. Now, people don't necessarily want to accept that, but it's like, it's true. You look at what's going on in some of the other biggest, largest sort of polluters on the planet, and you see, and even in our own country, you see it too. You see, like, active change to this renewable platform, right? Mm -hmm. So, like, China and India are both like dropping the hammer on their solar and wind programs to really try and drive that up and people understanding that capacity. Um, so I think, you know, that youth movement, I think um, I think the understanding that um, we have that technology available to do that. Um, and I do think there is some level and benefit to um, The education models that are starting to take place. I think when you look in places of higher ed or when you look at schools, like we're getting back to more opportunity to think about the impacts of our behavior. So, like, you can think about a farm to school program, right? Mm -hmm. Where students are starting to meet their farmers who are providing uh, produce, vegetables that are going. It's like, Right, we have to come back to some of that connective tissue that we've essentially lost for lots of generations who have basically grown up like, oh, I get my food from the grocery store. Yeah. You know, so I think there's hope in those sorts of small programs too that are really starting to bring us back to like some of the important issues we need to be reminded of. Yeah. Um, so, and I think there there is, I think there's good there's good intent I think there's good intent for a lot of people that like they want to do the good work they're just trying to figure out like how and I think it's overwhelming too I think people lose track of the fact that like we are we're all making compromises nobody's going to be perfect I think the under the thing that we need to continue to grow is that understanding like you need to make an effort whatever it is if that means you're Gonna carry a metal straw with you when you go out to the bar or out to the restaurant so that way you don't get a plastic one? Great. That's Mm -hmm. better than not doing that. Are you gonna take a canvas bag to the grocery store? Great, do that. Are you gonna go to the farmer's market? Great, do that. Like, nobody's gonna be able to do everything that needs to happen. What we need is a large mass of us all trying to do our best, realizing like nobody's gonna be perfect. No, you know, like nobody's gonna live a zero impact life. It's impossible. Like, we're all going to have impact. It's about, are you thinking about what you're doing and are you making an effort to try and be better and to make the world a better place?
0: That's, yeah, the connective tissue, I think the, that is, there's so many different factors, but I like thinking about things in terms of that connective tissue. Right. So let me, let me get this straight. Your perfect day would be being in a field watching dave matthews play with the band being powered by wind with a big wind windmill turbine kicking up all the amps the guitar power needed they're bussed in on an electric electric powered bus there's a co-op in the back with fresh food and a solar powered brewery right in the corner
1: Maybe a distillery, too, somewhere (laughs) along along the way. way. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. That all sounds wonderful.
0: And Dave just playing the night away. Having a good time. Giving all the proceeds to the community compost group. Yeah, yeah. I love it. Me too, man. (laughs) That sounds great. All right. Thanks for coming. Yeah, you This is outstanding. I think we need to have you back on so we can continue to digest these issues.
1: I'm, I'm happy to do it as long as we can figure out the schedule.
0: <laughs> <laughs> That's the biggest issue. That's right. We got it, though. Thanks a lot, Dave. You bet. Thank you. Yep.